Frank Sinatra once crooned, regrets? I've had a few. But what if there were a place that contained all the possible outcomes of every decision you've ever had to make, and you had the chance to relive them? This is Chapter 177 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and my conversation with the Midnight Library author, Matt Haig, is next, after this. We're just a little bit late when it comes to singing the praises of the Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Since it was published last summer, it's landed on several best book lists, not to mention more than a few bestseller lists where it remains even today. His story about a magical library that contains all of one woman's possible life stories tackles the big what-if questions, as well as depression, anxiety, and what makes a life worth living in the first place. Considering the year we've all had, it's no surprise this book has resonated with readers around the world. And like a lot of people currently separated by distance, we chatted via Zoom. In your book, we meet Nora, and for reasons we won't say, she finds herself at the Midnight Library, which contains books that feature all the paths her life could have taken. Where did this idea come from? Well, I would wanted to write about parallel lives uh, for a long, long time, but I thought there was so much out there that there was no real point in me joining in um, until I had the concept of the library, because I thought when, when that clicked, I thought, OK, that's kind of what a library is anyway, because a library is like a place where you're surrounded by books and books are like other lives anyway. And we, we kind of experience um, parallel existences via reading. That's kind of what fiction is there for, to step into other worlds. So once I had that, I thought, oh, okay, I can do something with this. And I've been uh, always interested in parallel lives, I think, because certainly when I was younger and I had experience of depression and anxiety, I, I was often dogged by regret and thinking, oh, if I'd have done this differently or if I'd have been a bit healthier or if I'd have gone this way or that way. And so I suppose I wrote the book really as self-therapy for myself, really to accept my own messy, imperfect existence and um, for anyone else who relates to that sort of frame of mind. There literally is in this book a book of regrets, which I think even if uh, readers don't have the background you have with with depression, that they can totally relate because I think everyone at some point in their life has thought, God, if I had only done this, then my life would be yeah. different this way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I feel like that's always been the case. But I think especially nowadays, I don't mean in the pandemic era, I mean the 21st century in general, we're surrounded, you know, this is the age of comparison shopping every time we, we, we go into a store, um, every time we're on the internet. Um, on social media, we're surrounded by other lives and other people we would have never met in the real world normally. And it's very easy to compare ourselves to other people and also to other versions of ourselves. If we'd have done this, or we'd have took this left turn, if we'd have gone on this date or whatever um, the choices are, we're kind of overwhelmed by choice. And at the end of the day, choice can kind of be paralyzing. You, you have to get to a point where you actually accept the timeline you're in, the life you're in, and um, imperfect as it may be, realize that within any life, you, you can know the highs and lows of human emotion. And, you know, that's essentially what we have access to. You know, we're too often thinking about the material differences, which obviously are important, but the, we still have access to human experience to look at the same skies, to look at the same sunsets, to have the same feelings and lows and, and you know, 
feelings of happiness as um, anyone else. So that's kind of what I was trying to say. I love too that as Nora is going through all these these parallel lives, that there's the same core group of people who she runs into. And it kind of has to do with that whole idea that what is it that you're only capable of having 150 real friends, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the real thing. I mentioned it in the book, but it's a fascinating bit of research. There's something called Dunbar's Number, named after this um, English guy at either Oxford or Cambridge University, I think Oxford, who anyway, he came up with this idea that um, human beings are only meant to know 150 people. And this idea took off because um, if you look at villages, say, or the average human community before the 18th century, when the industrial age really kicked in, human settlements were always around 150 people. You could go back um, 10,000, 20,000 years and see the same thing across Europe, um, across indigenous uh, peoples, everywhere in the world, the the average sort of human settlement is 150 people, you know, sometimes it's 130, sometimes 170. That's roughly the number of people you you would have experienced or been expected to roughly know at any one point in your life. Whereas now, you know, we could be in bed on Instagram before breakfast and meet 150 new people by scrolling um, past their feeds. And, you know, they're not the same people in our village or tribe, you know, sometimes these are exceptional people. These are like supermodels or top athletes or billionaires or, you know, and so I think that sense of being overwhelmed plus that feeling we're encouraged to have sometimes that we're not enough, that we have to have this extra added on is the feeling I always try and sort of fight against. I mean, no one looks at a newborn, but human baby and thinks and sees a lack or sees, oh, they haven't got enough social media followers, or they haven't got this, that, and the other. And wouldn't it be great if we could carry on that sort of sense of human worth that we we have for a baby and as a baby throughout our lives and the way we sort of see each other? Since the book's come out, it's landed on quite a few bestseller lists. Congrats on that. Thank you. What has reader reaction been like? Oh, it's been immense with this book. It's been it's been really you know because you you never know when you're writing a new story um, how it's going to go down, and yeah, I mean it, it's been it's been lovely. What's been really nice has been people who have given it to like a, a loved one or something who who's in a bad place and it's helped them, and then they send you a thank you note. And and I, I've heard a lot of personal stories from people. Um, so it's not necessarily just them um, talking about the book, but they're, t- they're talking to me about their own life or how it helped them sort of change or choose a different career path or whatever. And so that, that, that's that been nice that it's had a sort of real world effect in that way on some people. And um, yeah, and on your side of the Atlantic, it's been lovely as well, because it's the first um, of my books, I think that's really sort of taken off with American readers um, to the extent it has. So that's been um, really uh, lovely to see. And obviously, if this were normal times, I would be out there doing a, a book tour and meeting people and, you know, not being um, stuck in my house in England. But these are not normal times. But it, that's, it's been a, a lovely counterbalance to the sort of pandemic era to have made so many connections all over the world and all of that stuff. So that's been lovely. So while the book does deal with serious subjects, 
Nora gets to have some fun trying on her different lives. She gets to be an Olympic swimmer. She gets to be a rock star, even a glaciologist, which I had to look up how to pronounce correctly before this interview. (laughs) Did you have fun creating these alternative lives for her? Yeah, absolutely. That was the best part. And I, it's the part that makes you feel like you've got, you've got a proper job as well, because you, you go out and you do some research and you research things. And I love that side of it. And um, some of the lives she lives are kind of my wish fulfillment. Like certainly the one where she's a famous musician. I, I One of my regrets, and it's a little regret, but I've often had is that I was quite good at piano up until the age of 14. And then I suddenly became a totally self-conscious teenage boy who did not on a Friday evening want to be telling my friends I was going to Mrs. Peters for piano lessons. And I gave up piano and, and, you know, uh, tried to be cool and smoked and drank and everything. And I I really wish I hadn't um, given up um, the piano because you can't, I mean, I'm relearning piano now at 45, but you, you, I'm learning with a, my, um, 13 year old son and my 11 year old daughter. And it is so humiliating learning a musical instrument in parallel with, um, children because they just, you, hour for hour, they advance so much quicker and absorb so much and you get you sort of plateau at this sort of level and um so i i'll take like three days to do bohemian rhapsody or something on the piano <laughs> so anyway i'm rambling but yes the musician life was definitely the the one that i would have um wanted to live in a uh, glaciologist life i needed to totally research that I, I i knew nothing about glaciology i don't even know why i chose um her to be a glaciologist i just thought it would be nice if you could live any life she could live It'd be great to have some in some sort of extreme setting. So I just thought of the far north. Um, and it also leads to a great experience in the book for her, which we won't give away. Yes, indeed. So would your in-between place be a library or something different? Well, I, I like the idea of a library. I mean, the other in-between place, um, you know, this is only the mildest of mild spoilers. The other in-between place in the book that's mentioned is a video store. And I, I it would either be a library or like a 1980s video store because they those growing up in my small town in the middle of England they they were my two sort of safe spaces I used to spend a lot of time in the library because we had this lovely uh light it was almost like a greenhouse with sort of glass walls all around um library right in the center of town and I I used to go there not just to read but to do homework or just hang out or wait for my mum and dad to finish work um so libraries I like that. And also, yeah, I love movies and I love video stores, the old fashioned video stores, you know, pre Netflix, where you just used to go into the shop and and sort of look around and hope they had the latest John Hughes movie or whatever. (laughs) So, yeah, um, one of those. You've dedicated the book to health workers and care workers. Why? Well, because I wrote that dedication in April when Obviously, certainly in the UK by then, the pandemic had massively taken hold. We were in the middle of lockdown. We were um, seeing what the care workers and health workers were going through and the courage I was showing. I'd also, and my um, non-COVID related, my um, father's best friend was also 
getting um, treatment for terminal cancer at that point and was singing the praises of the help he was getting. And just from my own experience of knowing people who look after people um, and to keep optimism under all kinds of pressure. And, you know, I had like a month working in a care home when I would I just left school and I, I, I realized how incredibly hard and undervalued that kind of work is. Um, then, yeah, it just felt the right time, the right book and the right year to be making that dedication. So in the end, what do you want readers to take away? Um, I think if there's any theme, obviously regret is the theme of the book, but I, I think if, there's, if I could sum it up in one word, I suppose it's acceptance. You know, we, we aren't necessarily encouraged in a modern world full of advertising and marketing and um, Facebook to, to, to actually accept ourselves as we are and to sort of see the value that's there. And, you know, at the end of the day, we have no other choice, really, but to accept the lives we've got. And, and we are so often see a lack instead of the things we do have and we do have access to. And, you know, life is traumatic. Life is hard. Life is difficult at times. But it's also this wonderful gift that we've been given. And even when the news is terrible, even when we've got genuine stresses and genuine difficulties, we are still alive. And it's just a very simple fable about self-acceptance. I think ultimately that's what The Midnight Over is. I found it a really enjoyable book. I hope other people do as well. Matt Haig, thank you for spending some time with us today to talk about The Midnight Library. I love that. Thank you. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time around, we tackle fat phobia and embrace self-worth with debut young adult author Crystal Maldonado. Catch us if you can on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.